Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Today on the program, best-selling author of Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality, and what we're going to be talking a lot about on the program, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, Dan Ariely joins me. This is so exciting for me. I started this project. I didn't know if I was crazy for doing this, for trying to go around and talk with academics and figure out all of these uh, various meanings of life, and uh, like, like much of uh, this existence. Sometimes you don't know if you're on the right track with things or what you're getting yourself into and what you should do next. And having something like this happen and getting a guest like this for me uh, just means a lot because it was kind of some of the validation that I needed to know that I'm onto something. I'm doing something right. If I'm uh, getting a mind like this, I think you guys are really going to like this one. Go out and get all of his books. They're all fantastic. We mentioned his Course Era class that I took. Uh, I recommend just the class, uh, the Course Era website in general has tons of different classes and, and you can find all sorts of stuff to suit your interests and contribute to this greater conversation about life. Um, so enjoy. Give me some feedback. Share it with all of your friends. Write Dan on Twitter. Go to the herewearepodcast.com website for info on all of his books, all of his uh, website contact info, and everything else. And you guys are the best. Thank you. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody. This is Shane Moss. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. This is a very special uh, day. I, I, um, I got a, uh, this is a big get for me. I got a big guest today. 
Um, thanks to my friend Peter McGraw for setting this up. I tr- just drove up. I was performing in Myrtle Beach, and I got the opportunity to come up to Duke to interview um, Dan Ariely, who is um, a professor of uh, psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University, author of many fantastic well, three fantastic, but that's many to me. That's three more than it I've feels, It fills it all to me, too. <laughs> and uh, Three fantastic best-selling books. And also, um, I actually took your class on Coursera. You did? Um, did you, did in, you get the, the certificate? Did you do the whole thing? No, no, no I didn't. I didn't, uh, I didn't even attempt to. Yeah, it's I, a lot of work. It was a lot of work. Yeah, I did the videos and I took the video tests and I didn't do any of the writing assignments. I didn't well, do any of the other stuff. That, yeah, we um, actually set it up as a very tough class. Uh, we asked people to read about six papers a week. I think it was too much um, for most people. Well, had I not, I mean, I'm trying to learn as much as I can from a variety. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to do like one of these a week, which means I need yeah. to learn a lot from a variety of people. And so, um, but I... It's definitely well worth the time if if uh, if there's people interested. It's free, and it's basically it's a very good summary of your three books, and then some with all sorts of visual um, added fun and and um, all of that. You're a very funny guy in it, and you thank tell, you. Tell a joke at the beginning of each series. I I found found it incredibly entertaining, and very enlightening. I'm hoping this will be exciting for people that. Um, that know you, of course, but I'm I'm also hoping that you've never heard of Dan Ariely, and I'm getting the pleasure of introducing him to you now because um, his books will really change the way that that you look at the world. I've been um, I've been listening to your audio book, um, uh, the honest truth about dishonesty. Over the I actually just finished it the moment that I pulled up. Uh-huh. Um, Today. It's a it's a it's a guy with a great British voice. It's not it's not me. I know. I know it's disappointing all of a sudden to hear me, right? No, I wanted to ask you why you didn't uh, do your own because I think you have a very interesting um, voice, and it's you know you you obviously have a very distinguished voice, and I like I, your voice. I, thank you, but I I thought I like professionalism in everything, and I figured out you know this is not an area that I feel I'm a professional. I'm and I wanted to do somebody who's really good. And um, that guy's like almost too good. He's, I, he's I might say. And and I I heard him do the Hitchhiker Guide to the Galaxy. Okay. Uh, which and he did a great job. I mean, it's like he spends two weeks studying how he's going to articulate each word. I mean, he's, it he's is incredible. Perfect. He's incredible. Yeah. Um, he also uh, did a. It was in one of the Monty Python movies. Uh, I got to meet him, Simon Jones. And he's a great guy. But actually, let me ask you a question. Absolutely. So you mentioned that I try to tell jokes in uh, my class in general. And, you know, I I tell jokes that I've heard before. And I've always wondered about stand-up comedians. Like for stand-up comedians, it must be, it's, it's inappropriate to tell jokes that you heard, right? Every joke yeah. has to be yours, right? You can't You can't tell other people's jokes. Is that? Absolutely. This is this is one of the things that um, you know I, I was I was thinking might come up um, because it's funny for all of the uh, and we can get into this um, in a bit, but 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 for all of the kind of morally slippery things that I've done in my life, which yes. is a lot. I <laughs> I have I have a lot of experience with cheating in life, 
Um, for all of that that I've done, when it comes to writing my own material, it is, and I think most of the comics that I that I know, we really take a lot of pride in writing our own jokes. We really monitor ourselves very well. I'm calling friends constantly, asking them when I have an idea. Hey, have you heard something like this before? I don't want to be stepping on other people's material. Interesting. And um, we did an exhibit in our research center on. Uh, art and dishonesty. So from time to time, I give a lecture to artists and we ask them to produce art on a related topic. So we had one on dishonesty in art and they said that in art, stealing is just part of the deal. Really? That, uh, in fact, they said, you know, um, Picasso said, uh, good artists borrow, great artists steal or something like that. Um, there's a sense that taking somebody else's work and modifying it Doing something based on that is is a is a perfectly acceptable form, but with comedians it's not right. You can't take a Jerry Seinfeld stand-up show and do your own version of that. No, I mean, I mean, what you can do it, a, a lot of comedy is is kind of playing off of old cliches, yes. like maybe using a why the chicken cross the road kind of, and then putting your own new twist on it using yeah. but it's not modifying a joke it's not like um even sampling in music right when you take a song that exists and you just modify it but you, you can recognize the the, the other song it's, it's kind of interesting how different professions are adopting different standards yeah what it's, is acceptable in fact um you know i I try not to, um, I'm typically the headliner, like closing act when I go to, um, I mean, I'm not like a big, I'm going playing little crap holes all over the country, but, um, so come and see me in a crap hole, everybody. Um, but, uh, I, I'm typically the, the closing act and, and some headliners will kind of tell their support acts, Hey, don't do jokes about this. Don't do jokes about this and that because, I have material about that, or I uh -huh. this joke is maybe too edgy for my audience, something like that. I'll never ever tell um, a support act what to do. The only the only times that I'll ever mention anything is one if I I'll sometimes be like, hey, I've heard some similar stuff like that, so you may want to know just for your own benefit. Mm -hmm. But then the only time that I've actually asked a comedian not to do something. It was someone was going up right before I went up and telling um, street jokes, and and he was he wasn't passing them off as his own. He was like, "Here's some to take home with you," but the problem is, is that this is how you call it street jokes, the ones that right, yeah, <laughs> the ones on the internet, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, and and so so uh, the problem is, is it sets a certain tone in the mm -hmm. audience. Then the audience is kind of expecting that. And then yeah. when you go up and I tell like a lot of personal stories and, and all of that, and then people are like, Hey, what's with the, come on, bring on the knock knock stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that kind of hinders my performance, but, uh, but yeah, we very much, um, we police each other. There's a lot of, there's been a lot of big feuds in the comedy community, like Carlos Mencia being caught stealing jokes, which, um, uh, and, and I, a lot of other Dane Cook has been accused of stealing jokes. A lot of times, it's these bigger acts that tend yeah. to. Um, and they steal jokes from unknown uh, people. Yeah, and so this is what is considered um, uh, ethical to do. You can buy jokes. Oh, you can the, buy jokes. Yeah, um, but then if I buy one of your jokes, you're not allowed to use it anymore. Correct. Okay. Um, yeah, that would that would be the case. I, I know. 
I mean, very few people do it, but I know like Ron White, um, who's a very funny comedian. He actually has teams of people out in clubs going and looking at, um, you know, openers and, and kind of newer comedians and being like, hey, um, that joke of yours, that would fit really well in Ron White's act. Can I buy that from you? And how much and how much is a joke? I don't know. I think it's I, I don't think it's much like a hundred dollars or oh, that's something very like cheap. That, that's, that's a lot of work. Well, it's a lot of work for I mean I mean for me to get a joke to work to uh, to put like like a five minute set that I'm doing on Conan has yeah. maybe is maybe the best of the jokes that I've written in a year yeah. or something like that. So that's an incredible amount of work to give away for a hundred dollars. Yeah. But I think newer comics maybe get a kick out of hey Ron White bought some of my jokes or and you can you can say I mean but you don't have a credit for it right. Uh, no, you do well. Yeah, you don't get credit. You're probably not supposed to say that to say, as yeah. well, but um, but some people do um, do anyway. But yeah, it it is. I mean, I kind of um, your book has had me thinking about dishonesty. It, it does. I really realized I was like, this is the one comedy is the one thing where I honestly feel like I've I've just been absolutely honest my whole life. I've I feel like, and I wanted to talk to you about this because this will set up um, a lot of your work. So, I mean, I cheated my way through school. I was a C student. I wanted to be a comedian my whole life. Um, I never saw the value in an education <laughs> until I got older. And so I kind of, I never did any homework, which I still didn't do the homework in your class that I yeah. did. Um, I, I, yeah, I would do well in tests, well enough, and, and um, kind of skated by and, and, um, and I always, and then, you know, I started, I did some factory jobs and, um, and one job I had, there was a piece rate. Uh, you get, you got paid per the number of units you would make in an hour and, mm-hmm. and you would wand in, they would call it, use a scanner to wand in the number of parts that you made in that hour and the various operations. So they knew how much to pay you. And there was a lot of, of what we called creative wanding I see. Um, going on. And, and, and then, I'm guessing the creative wand, wanding was in one direction. I, it was very much in one It was never like, I don't deserve <laughs> yes. all of this money that you're paying me. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about because I very much justified yeah. all of this. I, By the way, the moment you have a term for something, like creative wanding, that that probably gives it extra justification to say, you know, <laughs> right. this is something that is socially acceptable. This is something other people are doing. You see other people are doing it. You experience it in a higher differently. All of a sudden, it's more okay. Yeah, and it, it was almost um, the culture of it was was such that um, so you would be timed on if you were like the first person to do this part someone would come and observe your work and time you to get an idea of what this average should be yeah. and when you were being timed of course you weren't giving it a hundred percent and yes. kind of everyone would do that that was the standard and then this creative wanding kind of was a bit of the standard too so then they would adjust the rates to make up for people cheating so then it was like if you didn't cheat. That's right. And, and that's, that's basically, I mean, in online dating, you see a lot of those things, right? Where you say, well, you know, uh, everybody else is saying they're a little younger and everybody else is doing <laughs> the their, fantastic their this, example. So, you know, how can I, if I don't do it, I'm, I'm not representing myself correctly. After all, you know, everybody else is doing it. So I'm penalizing myself. I'm hurting all these wonderful people who could meet me and they're not uh, meeting me. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, everyone so these, else is saying they're hiking. Uh, you know, right. I've I've been hiking before. I that's might right. as well. I like hiking. <laughs> um, you know, one of the this is a it's kind of not a really good academic experiment, but it's really fun experiment that we did that I think represents this uh, ability to justify we um so I own the vending machine. And I I set up the vending machine so that on the outside it says 75 cents and on the inside the machine was set to have the price of 0. So when you put in the money, the machine would give you back all the money. You would put in the money, you would press on the candy, the machine would give you the candy and the money back. And we had a big sign that says, here's a number to call in case everything is wrong. And we, first of all, observed how many people call that number. And how many people do you think call that number? Zero. Nobody, right. nobody calls. And, and then the question was, and how many candies would people take? And... And the majority of the people took either three or four, and nobody, nobody took five. Right? And I think that basically what happened is that five would be stealing. Like five would be a lot to take. Three or four, people could still rationalize. Right? People could say something to themselves like, I remember a different vending machine that took my money, that didn't give me a candy. That vending machine. The vending machine, universe owes that's right, me this. That's right, that's right. That vending machine is probably a close relative of this <laughs> vending machine. It's staying in the family. Um, and I'm just kind of restoring my vending karma in, in a way. And then the other thing that people did was to call their friends to partake as well. You know, usually when we see a behavior that other people are doing, we can justify it with greater ease. Mm. Um, and in this case, people did their behavior first, but then they wanted other people to partake as well to have it an easier time justifying it for themselves. So this ability to justify our own behavior is incredibly general, and there's lots of ways to justify. Everybody else is doing it. This is restoring justice. People are expecting it. They screwed me before. It's my time to get things back. I've Fantastic had a, a, more of a run of bad luck than other people have. That's right. My... Actually, that, that, the one on the bad luck is, is very important. Um, we did a study kind of to, to think a little bit about the 2008. And when we do our cheating experiments, we don't find that poor people cheat differently than rich people. Hmm. So I'll just describe to you one paradigm we're using. Uh, so imagine I have a die a regular six-sided die, and I say, look, if it comes on one, you get one dollar, two, two, five, five, six, six, and so on. And you can get paid on what the die falls on the top or on the bottom. Top or bottom, top or bottom. You decide, but don't tell me. So you decide yourself top or bottom. You decided? Mm-hmm. Yes? Don't tell me. Okay. Now you roll the die. It comes with two on the top and five on the bottom. And now I say, what did you decide? Now, if you decided bottom, there's no problem. You say bottom and you get five dollars. But if you decided top, now you have a dilemma. Do you say top and get $2 or do you change your mind after the fact and say, oh, I thought bottom from the beginning and get $5? So when we get people to do these, this task about uh, 20 times, we can figure out whether people are lying or not right. lying. So when we do it for very poor people and very rich people, we don't find very di- much difference. But when we get people to believe that where they are in life, is unjust, saying, Shane, you know, really, you're very, very talented and qualified and hardworking, but kind of things have been unfair to you. Not, not because of you, like things have been unfair. Once people accept that mindset, they all of a sudden are willing to cheat mm. to a much higher degree. And if you think about 2008, I think that's basically what happened is lots of people basically did what they were told. 
They said, buy a house and put money in retirement and do all of those things. And we did that. And all of a sudden, things did not turn out the way that we were told. And once you feel that you're, you kind of were screwed over by, by somebody else for no reason of your own, all of a sudden, the justification to be dishonest increases quite dramatically. Hmm. Um, that's it. You know, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about regarding, um, re- regarding the peer, um, the, the, the social pressure to cheat and, um, and, and this kind of um, Robin Hood uh, yes. uh, morality. Um, do, you, do you think, um, I was just thinking about this on the way over, uh, do, you, do you think that people um, that maybe have, because in my mind, we, we always put, oh, this person has a family, the, this person um, is, uh, you know, we care very much about this in, as politicians. They have yep. two children and, and, uh, and a wife and all of that. But that can also lead to more pressure to provide. And yes. it can also lead to you being like, well, I'm a good person. And, what I, and this isn't for me necessarily. Right. This is me providing for my two innocent children. So maybe right. I can cut the... Yeah, so, so I'll tell you that I, I started being interested in this question of cheating for others. Uh, I got a call from a non-for-profit. And this is a non-for-profit I give to money every year. It's a non-for-profit I like. Oh, uh, What is it? I can't tell you. Okay. I'll tell you why. And anyway, and they said, would you help us uh, raise more money? And I said, of course, with pleasure. But tell me what you've done before. And they told me what they've done before. And I couldn't believe how dishonest they were. I couldn't believe how, ah. how sneaky and really, I mean, they were doing things that I don't think a for-profit company <laughs> would ever do. And I thought, you know, they probably were able to do it because they were paid badly. They were doing it for the public good, right? A bit like politicians saying, oh, you know, I'm not lying for myself. I'm lying for something else. So the, the experiments we did that I described in the book are experiments in which we cheat for other people. So I put you in a team with somebody else, and all of a sudden your profits go to both of you, and all of a sudden people feel like they can cheat more. But I'll tell you about two, two new experiments we just finished doing. The first one, imagine the same die task I just described to you. You roll a die and you get paid by this and you 20 times. And we ran this in Kibera. Kibera is a slum in Kenya. And this was a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. So if we go to a slum, we can, we can pay something that is reasonable for us, but lots of money for them. Um, and in one time, you sit and you roll the die by yourself and you write down, uh, what the die came on, if you chose top or bottom, and how much money you deserve. And you sum it up on a piece of paper. And um, another condition, you're doing the same thing, but your significant other is sitting next to you. Now, your significant other doesn't know what you decided, top or bottom, top or bottom, but they get to see whether you're you know, extra lucky right. or not. <laughs> so what do you think happens when people sit next to the significant other? Do they cheat more, the same, or less? I think they cheat less. So they cheat more. Really? And it goes back to what you just said, which is that, of course, whenever you make money, it's for you and your significant other. But when your significant other is sitting next to you, you all of a sudden realize that you're making the money for both of you. Ah. And all of a sudden, your moral constraint goes down. It's true. I was thinking, in my mind, I was like, well, maybe you wouldn't do it right in front of them because <laughs> you're worried about letting down this person that so, you, so it's true that you, you it's true that you're probably worried about that to some degree. But you also have a different view of what the money is for. Mm. And all of a sudden, the money is for something, something good. And I'll tell you about one other dis- more disturbing experiment. So imagine, again, the same procedure. You roll the die. And we connect you to a lie detector. 
And when you roll the die and you lie, the lie detector can figure it out. Not all the time, but we can figure it out when you're lying. What happens when you're lying for charity? When you're lying for charity, the lie detector doesn't detect anything. How come? Because when you lie for yourself, you have a conflict. Tell the truth, get some more money. Tell the truth, get some more money. Which, which one wins? And this conflict that you're experiencing, creating tension, increased galvanic ilk, increases the sweat, and increases your, what's called the galvanic skin response. Like you're, you're, you basically are feeling stressed. Right. But when you're lying for charity, it's good. Yeah. It's all good. I'm oh, Robin Hood, amazing. right? There's no, there's no stress. There's no bad feeling. Huh. So the lie detector can't detect anything. That's amazing. Hey, and um, re- regarding some of these, that I have a rather goofy question for you. But when you go to, uh, when you go to get some of the, this funding for some of, many of your studies are like, here, we're giving an, a people an opportunity to um, earn money and then take money. Yeah, I would think that would be a hard thing to sell to the college. Like, <laughs> hey, can you guys give me a bowl of money to leave out for but people it, yeah. to grab? And so, but I suppose your success has probably helped in that regard. It, 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 it has become easier over time. Um, I would say that uh, most of the funding for this research came from private um, organizations that give us money to support our research center. Um, uh, what, so what's their interest? So what happened is that we have companies that support our research center and they benefit from the whole range of things that, that we do. They don't benefit from everything specific. And we, we tell them, look, you're contributing to the research center. You're going to benefit from something is not from other. And you don't get any say in what kind of research we do, but you'll get to benefit. And if you don't like it, you can just stop. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get, we get funding for this. Um, but I remember the first time I did a study like this, um, <laughs> This was a study in which we uh, told people that we're giving away free money. So we had a booth, and we said, giving away free money. And sometimes we had $1, sometimes we had $5, 10 20 and 50 And when we proposed the study, the accounting people were just, <laughs> like they said, you know, we want to know who is taking it. And we said, no, 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 we don't want to take any information down. We don't want people to think that there's any... Hmm. Any, any scruples, any condition, we're not going to call them, they're not signing up for something. It's just a pile of money and a big sign, free money, and we want to see how many people take it. Eventually, they let us do it. Um, it turns out, by the way, that, of course, as the amount of money increased, more people took it. But even at $50, less than 20% of the people took the money. Most of the people just didn't believe it was true. And they were so suspicious, right? $50, even if you think they want something from you, you mm. could say, let me at least check it out. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> no. So, um, <laughs> but, but it, is, it is challenging. It's challenging also for the accounting department because right. the moment you, we don't take any personal information, no IDs, people are free to, to steal money. But I'll tell you something else that we're doing that is kind of interesting. So again, imagine this task, the die task, mm-hmm. and you write down how much you deserve let's say at the end, you deserve $25. And then I give you an envelope with $50. And I say, pay yourself and leave the amount of money you didn't <laughs> earn in the envelope. It turns out very few people steal. Really? So the first part we call cheating, right? Saying down when it was really up and so on. You kind of, but, but once you wrote down that you're taking $25, people basically take $25. Hmm. Uh, even criminals, we did this study um, 
outside of the parole office. We've been waiting for people to get out on parole and tempting them with this, with this task. And we find that they cheat just like everybody else. And even these criminals don't steal. So, and, and you can think about it that as long as just in your mind, top, bottom, you say, oh yeah, I really thought top, I really thought bottom. But once you write a number down, mm. it's so apparent to you that you're stealing and it reflects morally bad on almost everybody, and then nobody's doing it. I mean, this is what is really, really important. Well, one of the many things that's very important about your work is that in, in your mind, you think, well, I'm a good person. It's these criminals doing yeah. all of the cheating and the lying and the stealing. Yeah. I, I'm not doing any of that. Yeah, and I, I'm doing now a documentary on dishonesty. Um, so we've we've been doing all these. I saw you uh, you had a Kickstarter for it, and then and you've started the project. That's correct? right. And what what's the name of it going to be? So we we don't know uh, right now. Okay. It's called the Dishonesty Project. Okay. Um, so so you know we do all these lab experiments on cheating, and the project of the movie was to talk to big cheaters, and really get get their journey throughout the cheating cycle. Right? You look at what uh, big cheaters do at the end, and you say to yourself, I could have never done that. But we know from the lab studies that everybody can cheat a little bit. The question is, are they really different people? Or are we all capable of taking one step in the wrong direction and then get things worse and worse and worse and worse? And I have to say that almost all the big cheaters we talk to are basically regular people that took one step. I'll give you one example. This guy called Aaron gets tremendous pressure from the CEO to fudge the books a little bit for just one quarter. And under this tremendous pressure, he does it. Not for himself, but for the company and the CEO. But he doesn't think about what will happen the following quarter. And the following quarter, he's in a double trouble. And then it goes on and on and on and on and gets worse and worse and worse and worse. But the thing I wanted to, to say was that one of the, the most bizarre discussion I had from all of those was with a guy from the mafia. And, you know, when you talk to somebody from organized crime, it seems they have no scruples whatsoever, right? They're willing to do whatever, to, to cheat the government, taxpayers, clients, you know, whoever. They, they just don't care. But the reality is that they have tremendous ethical standards, but only within the family. Mm. So it's not that they are amoral. They just have lots of domains in life when they are not moral. And they have some domains in which they are very, very moral. And we kind of understand this, too. I mean, we watch The Sopranos and we kind yes. of sympathize with it because right. it's showing this family life. You watch Breaking Bad and it's like the idea that you would ever empathize with someone <laughs> cooking meth or something. Right. But he, here he has this handicapped son and a pregnant That's wife. Right. And, and all of a sudden and, you, can see, you can see it happen. And, and, you know, in many ways, we are all like this. So the, the guys from the... Organized crime, of course, are extreme, but we all have domains in which we define as being outside of the moral domain. Uh, for most young people in the U.S., it's downloading illegal music, mm. right? So when I ask my students about this, all of them have illegal music and nobody cares. Writing right? the filth. And, you know, it's not... <laughs> and, and it doesn't make them more likely to commit other crimes, they basically said this domain of copying illegal music is not a moral issue anymore. Other countries, you know, bribing a policeman might not be in the moral domain. So the different countries have, um, and it's kind of interesting that the cultural differences we find are basically like that. 
they are domain by domain specific. So when we do our task, like the die task in different countries, in China, in India, in South Africa, in Germany, and uh, so on, we don't find many differences. Right. All the differences come from the interpretation of dishonesty within a domain. So in some places, bribing a policeman is fine, but paying taxes, uh, you, you obey the law. In some places, the DMV is completely crooked, but you, you don't mess with the police. You know, I, w- I was kind of surprised that you didn't find any gender differences at all in in cheating. Is that is that correct? Because it is. May- maybe I'm uh, I I wasn't socialized properly with women growing up, and so I I know nothing about. So I put them on a bit of a pedestal, and they're just these angels to me. So in my mind, I always I would have assumed that men cheated more um than women did so, so i think i think it's a little bit like like the other cultural differences that i think the the backbone of human morality is the same right when you get a task like ours which is general and abstract and people see it for the first time there's no difference but it doesn't mean that there's no difference in particular domains of life so you could say I bet golf scores or something like that. For example, perhaps guys, golf scores something competitive. That's right. Maybe, maybe golf scores, or maybe, maybe it's even more nuanced than that. Maybe. uh, So I have uh, two kids; they are eleven and eight, and I realized in the last few years uh, that parenting is a very competitive sport. (laughs) So you know, maybe, maybe cheating on on golf is one direction. Cheating about the performance of your kids or how how much angels they are, or you know, and so on, would be would be something else. And but I think it's really very much about embedded in the culture about what is acceptable and not acceptable. Um, that's amazing. I I wish I. I would love to do an episode of each chapter of one of your books because I think your work is absolutely so amazing and profound. I have By such way, a limited I, I don't amount know, of time. I don't know if you know this, but uh, when you give people compliments, they actually believe you <laughs> and they like you more and they do it even if they know their compliments are insincere. Oh, really? well, mine are quite sincere. <laughs> well, you know, I say that now. There you, you go. You know, I, so that brings up a point that I, 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 was, um, I was thinking about um, this and again, I, I have. Uh, I wish I had you for more time, but I'll I'll, um, I'll get to a few things. Um, the disclosure effect. Yes. Um, so so you find when when you give people the opportunity to be like, hey, we might be cheating. I'll I'll let you. Um, yeah. So so disclosure and you know basically what's called the sunshine policy are presumed to to solve everything, right? So. I'm your financial advisor, and I say, Shane, just so you know, this company that I'm recommending that you buy their stocks or this uh, portfolio, whatever, just so you know, they pay me a quarter of a percent, right? And that's supposed to cure everything because all of a sudden you know that I'm being paid by this. So imagine I give you this recommendation. So imagine three conditions. Condition one, I don't tell you anything. I say, hey, we have these two stocks. Which one do I recommend? And I, I push the one that... Right. Um, that I that you know I get more money from. Uh, condition two, I don't get any bonus from them, so now I'm I'm not biased. Okay, so the first the first uh, distinction is to say if you pay people uh, for one stock but not the other, they would push that stock and not the other. Okay, now what happens when disclosure happens? 
So when disclosure happens, I say, here, Shane, I, I think you should buy stock A over stock B. By the way, I get a quarter of a percent back for everything you buy. Um, now you discount my opinion. However, I am not representing it in the same way. Now there's a chance for me to exaggerate even more my recommendation. Instead of saying, I really think you should buy it, I say, it will be a terrible mistake. You would, you would really be disappointed. You are going to make a terrible mistake if you don't buy it. Right? So I can push even more. And the finding is that people discount with conflicts of interest, but the person who is, has the conflicts of interest feels more free to cheat even more because after all, I disclosed it. Right. And the, the total effect is actually negative. So the total effect is that if I'm recommending and disclosing it, my increase in willingness to cheat you outweighs your discount rate. You don't understand how much I'm willing to cheat you because, you know, you look at my eyes, I'm your, your financial advisor, you think, oh, you know, maybe it's exaggerating a little bit. You don't understand the truthfulness, the, the extent of how much I'm willing to uh, exaggerate. And you so, feel this disclosure built trust. Well, this guy's right. telling me he's doing this, so he's being honest about it. It has to be, yeah. Um, by the way, we also did something on second opinions. So uh, people often don't go for second opinions. And one of the reasons is that you don't want to go to your doctor after they say, I think you need this procedure. And you say, oh, can you refer me to a second opinion? You're basically saying, I don't trust you. So people don't uh, go for second opinion. Um, and ironically, we found that if the doctor recommends that you go for second opinion, people are even less likely to do so. Right? Because all of a sudden they say, I think you should go for second opinion. They say, oh my goodness, this is a, such a trustworthy guy. Yeah. There's obviously no reason That's to do interesting. that. Um, so the things that we think would, would help, like disclosure and sunshine policies, are really not, not working out. And, and by the way, I, I had a discussion yesterday. Somebody, I met somebody whose um, his daughter had a very bad um, medical condition, went into hospital, and they had to sign these consent forms. And he said, you know, he was so stressed out. And they gave him this 20-page consent form to sign. He said he couldn't have told you what he read, if he read, right. anything like that. So we, as a society, we put a lot of faith in legal things, thinking as if people read carefully and reason carefully. And it, it's, just, it's just not true. And we need to really have something that is not relying uh, on the perfectly rational legal mindset i was um i was just thinking about the disclosure effect on a personal level um i'd heard that and it got me thinking i was like i wonder how much i do this in my life and what what spurred the idea was as i'm complimenting i'm, I'm disclosing well yeah sure i say this a lot to a lot of people that i genuinely mean <laughs> that's right that's right and, and then a lot of times i i what i was a better example that i was thinking of is i try to work science into my act on stage but i'm very loose with how accurate my science is, because I feel like there's this, this disclosure. I'm a stand-up comedian. You That's can't right. expect me to be accurate with all this stuff. You have to assume that I'm fudging some of the details to get a laugh, uh -huh. and therefore I think that leads me to... To be, even more willingness to yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, I, and my guess is that um, people, people probably don't uh, discount it correctly. So, you know, let's, let's think, about, you know, it's shocking how many people think that the Daily Show is a good source of news. Right. It's certainly a good source of entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's in the same category of saying, I'm a comedian. You know, what, what do you really think of it as news? And what do people believe 
is the newsworthiness. Like if you watch that, you really don't have to read the news anymore because you get all the right. all the things into. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I have uh, one one quick tangent, just because this came up in a past um, podcast, and I just need to get this out of the way. Um, my very first podcast was with uh, Marty Hazelton, an evolutionary psychologist at UCLA, and we were talking about um, um, mating and, and stuff. And one of your studies came up, which was the morality in the um, in the erection um, uh-huh. study. And we were a little foggy on on some of the details. So I thought, I was like, well, I might as well just ask him personally. It's a very entertaining um, study and, and yes. um, thought-provoking as well. So, so the study was um, actually very simple. So I'm not sure which details were uh, fuzzy, but um, we asked um, young men uh, questions about um, to what extent they would lie to women to get sexual gratification. You know, would you tell a woman you love her even if you don't? Would you uh, try to get her to drink a bit too much? Would you give her a slip her a drug? All kinds of things kind of on the range from lying to date rape. Then we asked them about their sexual preferences. You know, some standard sexual preferences, but also some things that are a bit more extreme. Like, you know, on the standard, we say, would you kiss somebody who smoked, right? Something that may be slightly uh, unpleasant all the way to things that are extreme, um, you know, contact with animals and stuff like that. Um, and then we asked about the usage of condoms in birth controls. And we had two conditions. We had what is called the cold condition in which I take you and I say, hey, Shane, uh, would you get a woman to drink too much with the hope that she would uh, go to bed with you, to increase the chance she'll go to bed with you? On, on some scale from never to yeah, always. five. Yeah. Um, and then some people were doing it in a cold state, right? Unaroused state. And some people, we gave them uh, the same laptops, uh, but we also had some pornography. And we asked them to look at the pornography and self-arouse. Uh, we, we gave them a one-handed keyboard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we asked them to do it in the dorm bed. I mean... Everybody had a, a one-handed keyboard, but these guys also got the the pornography, and we asked them to maintain a, like an eighty-five percent erection. And if they, to think about this, so we didn't want them to come, but we wanted them to have to be aroused. And um, and then once they got to that level, the question started popping out. Now, both conditions, the cold and the hot conditions, people were trying to predict how they would behave when aroused. Right. So I'm saying, if you're in a you're in a restaurant with a woman, you have a chance. Would you get her to drink too much? Right. Uh, but in some conditions, you are imagining being aroused. In the other one, you're actually aroused. And what happened was that when people were actually aroused, their judgments were very different. It was as if they didn't know themselves. Right? So when people were unaroused, they said, I would always be nice to women. I would not want to do all of these odd sexual activities. And I would always wear a condom. When people were aroused, they would say, hey, I can see being really terrible to women. I can see enjoying lots of very different sexual activities, and I can see myself not wearing condoms. So the idea is that emotion changes us, which of course is something we know, mm-hmm. uh, but it changes us be- beyond how much we appreciate it would change us. Because if we change you, change you just the amount that you appreciate, you would say, oh yeah, when I'm aroused, I would behave this way. But People don't understand how much emotion will change them. And it's not just about arousal, by the way. It's about hunger and anger and, and you name it. Um, 
the thing is that when emotion takes over, and evolutionary psychology, of course, is, is a great way to think about this, right? So in evolutionary psychology, they think about emotion as, as taking over. These are executable programs that have been designed to take over and just execute something. You see a tiger, you should start running. You see a mate, you should procreate. I mean, the, this is something where nature doesn't want you to stop and think. That nature doesn't want you to come up with an Excel spreadsheet and think about the pro and the con. Nature wants you to act in a certain way. And emotions basically are doing that, are taking over and getting us to behave in a certain way. And interesting in a way that we don't anticipate and predict. And, and by the way, um, you know, there's lots of emotions, as we said. Uh, one reason to do arousal is that, it's, first of all, it's positive, right. unlike anger or hunger and so on. But the other one is something that students experience all the time. So it's also familiar. So if we did the study on anger, you could say, well, they just don't know how what angry feels like. Arousal, they kind of know. Right. Um, all right. Well, I only have you for five minutes tops here. Um, so uh, perhaps I'll be able to talk you into coming on again sometime and I can ask you uh, one of these hundred other questions that I have. Um, quickly, I do have every week, I do have um, the guests. Um, plug a nonprofit that they do uh, enjoy that that they um, find to be ethical. Do you have one? So, uh, so, so there's lots of non-for-profits uh, that I like. I can't, I, I can't tell you which is the one that is unethical because I, I <laughs> still, fine. I still like them, but, but I'm, uh, I'm but a bit, you... I'm a bit more worried about them these days, right? Uh, than I was, than I was before, um, so. Can I, can I uh, plug a competitor to you? Absolutely. So I really like Radiolab. Okay. You know these guys? Um, I'm not terribly familiar, but I'll, I'll look it's, into it's them. A very, it's a very nice uh, radio show and podcast. Okay. Uh, they're doing, I think, a great service to uh, science. Um, I, think, I think they're great. Um, that's terrific. I'm, I'm fine with uh, competition. <laughs> I'll, I, will, I will check them out. Um, and, and speaking of, along those lines, just um, a few... Last few closing words. I I started. I don't really know. I'm you know. I just started. I thought I'd have each guest. I, I've had podcasts in the past where I've had to sell a bunch of crap that I didn't want to sell and all of that. And I decided I didn't want to deal with any of that. I thought it'd be much easier to get people to donate to charity and do something good rather than to try to get a dollar out of people or you know whatever. Um, that being said, I was wondering with what we've discussed, it, and we we're talking about priming and ways to get people to cheat. Do you have any ideas on how I could prime people to uh, to give or to look into um, just uh, doing good in their regular life? Anything like and, that? And are you are you thinking about doing something uh, good for you or just in general? Um, I think. Uh, Let's keep it specific like this. If I wanted people to um, donate to my guest charity, um, yeah. it, it, would, would there be specific ways that I could prime uh, them? Uh, like I don't know. I, I've thought of maybe I would do some sort of match thing or something like that where yeah. I give a certain amount and hopefully everyone else everyone. will. So, so I, I would say so. it's very hard to get people to adopt changes in general in life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because if you know something in principle, you learn about it. The question is, would you keep on doing it day in and day out all the time? So one of the things we find is that, you know, uh, teaching people that it's dangerous to text while driving is no 
help when it comes to actually reducing texting and driving, right? You know it in principle, but then acting on it every time is very, very tough. Um, so if you think about getting people to act one time, uh, the question is what will be a motivator? So when you think about something like matching contribution, that's about incentive, right? I say, oh my goodness, I could do two things, like give $2, it will actually give four. The incentive is higher. But in your particular case, I think what I would try to do is I would try to use the version of reciprocity. So, you know, there's lots of really wonderful things about our irrational nature. You know, usually we think about irrationality as just being bad. The truth is there's a lot of nice things about irrationality. For example, our willingness to help other people. Uh, you know, the fact that you give a tip to a waiter or a waitress in a town that you don't intend to go back to is completely baffles economists, right? right. If you if you're right. going to tip somebody you come back to, you could say, okay, it's a repeated game and so on. But if you tip somebody that you're never going to meet again, why are you doing that? Well, it's because of reciprocity. It's because they did something to you and now you feel a need to do something back to them. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. I would say, you know, if you valued what what you got, um, it's, it's, your, it's your turn to pay back. Right. And then the other thing I would do to try and increase that feeling, I would talk a little bit about the amount of effort that goes into it. So um, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, imagine that you, you, you need to park. and You find a spot next to a parking meter and uh, you're looking for a quarter and you don't have a quarter. And I pass by. And you say, hey, Dan, do you, have a, do you have a quarter? And I said, yes, I have a quarter. I'll sell it to you for a dollar. <laughs> now, you have 10% of being caught. The fine is $40. You know, would, you, would you pay me a dollar for a quarter or would you take the risk? And most people say, I'll take the risk. Case number two, the same thing. You park, parking meter, I pass by. You ask me if I have a quarter. And I say, look, I don't have a quarter. But there's a bank five blocks down the street. If you want, I'll run as fast as I can down to that bank. I'll change a dollar for quarters, I'll run as fast as I can. Back, I'll be sweaty and I'll be tired and out of breath, but I'll give you a quarter. But if I do all this, would you give me a dollar? You would probably feel quite good. Right. Now. And what's the difference between the two? The difference is that I worked. Right. There's no difference in the value. In fact, in the second case, you have to wait for me to run and come back. It's less valuable. But I worked for you. So, And, and if you think about reciprocity, a part of it is the feeling of what did we actually get in this exchange and how much did this other person work for us? Right. So if you could, for example, describe uh, how long it took you to drive here. So I drove three and a half hours each way to get one of the uh, top writers <laughs> in science, a no, bestseller right. for you guys. And, so and, go and, and talk, check out and, my competitors uh, on this. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then you want to talk about, you know, you had to fuel for gas and yep. how long it took you to set it up here and how much money and effort you spend on this uh, lovely recorder and how much time, you know, I'm spending. So the, the more you can give people a sense, you know, Say, you know, um, the research I described to you right now uh, probably cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to run. We have a big lab. Lots of people were involved. Right. And getting a sense that, that what you're getting is, uh, I, I don't think you should lie. First of all, because there's lots of effort going into these things. 
But the moment you say to people, we've done this for you, it's your turn, and we've done lots of things for you, and give people a sense of what you've done for them, presumably willingness to contribute back would increase. That's wonderful advice, and I just have to find a way to do it without sounding like I'm complaining, <laughs> I, I suppose, and laboring for you guys, because I very much enjoy doing this as well. Um, I need to get you out of here before you're late for your meeting. Thank you so much for your time. Thank uh, you. Dan Ariely, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Listen again next week. Tell your friends and check out Dan's books and his uh, Course Era class and his um, new uh, untitled uh, <laughs> movie, which you can you can check out the um, Dishonesty Project on Facebook and and um, and there will be more information on the Here We Are site. Thank you guys for listening. Next week I have Deborah Bame on the show. I stopped through Reno a few months ago. Talked with her about her work. She goes down to small rural towns in Mexico and studies the effect of immigration on the families down there. It really gives a very unique perspective on immigration that uh, we just don't get to hear. Um, I It was a fantastic episode, and you guys are going to love it. So make sure and tune in for that. And if you're wondering what to get me for Christmas, that's an easy one. Go to iTunes and write a nice review of this podcast. Um, actually, writing a review, it, it does. It, it's nice if you guys can go on and rate it five stars and everything. That is terrific. But it, I, the way iTunes works is that the more reviews there are, the, the more attention it gets. And so if you can just take just a little bit of time, this is a free thing to do. I, I spend tons of money <laughs> I'm going way out of pocket um, to make all of this happen, and I just want people to listen to it. So if you guys can just take a little bit of time to go on and write a review for me, that would be tremendous, and I will love you forever. Thank you very much. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, The New Frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. 
walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins <laughs> one day. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. 